Hi everyone, in today's recording we're going to interview one of our current clients, Edward, um, and discuss some of the um, successes he's had with networking. And I think that it's an important podcast because one of the most difficult challenges for candidates who have either been rejected previously or have you know, relatively weaker resumes is finding a way just to get an interview with consulting firms. So thank you for joining us today, Edward. You're welcome. Thank you. No problem. So just to introduce Edward, he's an um, engineering graduate, uh, mid-30s. He's worked in the, for the federal government in the public sector his entire life. You know, so thank you for your contribution to your country. Mm -hmm. um, he graduated from a non-Ivy school, you know, different terms to describe them, but, but not one of the well-known engineering schools. And he, I'm just going to pick my words carefully here, he has, before he started working with us, he did submit an application to McKinsey and the feedback he received from them is that, you know, he wouldn't be considered for a generalist role, but he would be, they would be open to reviewing his resume for a specialist role, possibly in BTO and so on. So today's discussion, I want to focus on what Edward did to go from getting this rejection from McKinsey to getting a principal from the Boston Consulting Group writing a letter of referral to get him an interview. So let's start there, um, Edward. You know, how did you move from that point? What was the first thing you did you know, after the feedback from McKinsey? Okay, well, the first thing I did was rebuild the resume. Um, I know I'm looking now at the new one and the old one side by side, and there's a huge difference. And the one McKinsey saw was my old resume, and it did not have a lot of detail, and it did not really it didn't look impressive. And so the first thing I did after getting the rejection was basically spend two or three months rewriting my resume from scratch. Did you enjoy that process? <laughs> yes and no. Mostly no. Um, it was very challenging. I'm glad I did it. I did enjoy it. But it was also, um, you have to take an honest look at yourself. And you have to th really think through everything you do, so it's it's painstaking in some regards. Give me some examples of things that you changed that you hadn't considered important but turned out to be important in your new formatted resume. Things that I had not considered important that I now consider important. Let's see. Well, basically, my earlier resume uh, was the one I had been using from college, and it did not have any detail at all. And that was important. I'm a, I'm a conceptual thinker oftentimes, and it turns out, so I've learned, that a lot of people are not conceptual thinkers. They like details. They like knowing numbers. They like knowing the specifics. So basically every bullet point that was in my resume, if I could use it, it had to have detail added to it. And then at the same time, my old resume, I was listing my roles and responsibilities. I wasn't thinking about my accomplishments and my achievements. A role and responsibility is interesting, but what matters to someone evaluating you is what you did with that responsibility or what you accomplished in that role. And so I had to restructure my resume around what I accomplished and what I achieved in my given roles with the responsibilities that I had. So a lot of content changes, and three months is a, is a long time to do that. So obviously you were sending us your resume and you were getting a lot of feedback. Now, I think one of the things that I, would, I want you to talk through is, is three months is a long time. Why did it take so long to make, to go through like something like 17 iterations of changes? Why couldn't it have been done in one or two or three edits? 
Well, there's, I think there's two reasons for that. One of them, the first one is that every, you can't turn it around quickly. If you're really going to think about a bullet point on your resume, you have to really think about it. And it's not something you can do in 15 minutes. And, and in fact, maybe in an hour, after an hour of thinking, you can, you can rewrite the bullet. But then you want to come back three days later after it's been mulling, mulling over in your head on the back burner to revisit it again to see if you still like it or if there's a way to get it better. And so for every change you make, it, it requires that level of like thinking and understanding about it. At the same time, I was learning to do – I'd never done this before. So I was climbing a learning curve as well in terms of learning how to add detail, what kind of detail is appropriate, learning how to phrase my accomplishments – and learning how to use language that makes sense to, in management consulting as opposed to language that makes sense um, in the government or, or to an engineer. So that's a good point because you, know, you obviously have a very strong engineering discipline. You've been in that field your entire life. That's all you've done. How hard was it for you to write about things you did in detail but in a language that anyone could understand who had no engineering background? Thinking back on it, it was a very difficult thing to do. I recall a number of our sessions where the, the feedback was just very challenging because you would say something like, Edward, I don't understand what this means at all. This makes no sense to me. And so and I thought when I wrote it, you know, after sitting there, just like I, I described for an hour or two really thinking about it, I thought that I had used clear, obvious language. But Clearly and obviously, I had not. So that was a really big hurdle, and that's where a lot of the pain and the frustration came from, I think. But obviously, it worked out. You've got a good resume. I think it's obviously bearing a lot of fruit for you. Let's talk mm -hmm. about what you did with your resume once it was ready. Or let's maybe start off by saying why you even went through so much pain to get a good resume. Okay. The, the pain for a good resume, in my mind, was the first step of, of getting an interview, and mainly through networking, because... A resume is the foundation for your profile, and when you're trying to build professional connections, when you're networking, people are going to judge you based on your profile very, very rapidly. So you, if you don't have an appealing profile, um, you're, you're going to have a much more uphill battle when you network. It's going to take much longer and success will be much more difficult. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, we've seen that, you know, it takes you a long time to get started. So three months on your resume... And then you, re you started entering the networking world sometime in October, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk me through your initial thoughts when you began networking. Did you know why you were networking? You know, what were you thinking about? This, everyone uses the word networking. It's become such a cliche. What did Edward think when I told him to network? Okay. So I had listened to all the networking podcasts, I think, at this point, two or three times. And I, had several, and I have pages of notes. I still have a stack of notes. Um, they're in the computer, but I keep them and look, look back on them whenever I want to re-listen to a podcast. So, so I had the process in my head. I had the process where you connect with people um, on LinkedIn, and then from there, you sort of look for mutual professional attraction, and you want to escalate from a connection to maybe a, a few emails, to a phone chat, to a coffee chat. And along the way, you want to get people to like you so that they offer to help you. And then of course, the ultimate endpoint of an offer to help is a request for an interview, but you may or may not get to that point. So I had that process in my head. However, actually executing it was, was really challenging for me because I came in. I remember the first connections I was sending out on LinkedIn. I was so afraid. I had, 
I was so sure that it would just go miserably and, and I would be rejected or maybe my, maybe my profile would be blocked somehow if people thought that I was spamming them. Mm-hmm. So it took a long time for me to understand just the mechanics of and, and to become comfortable with the mechanics of executing the process, even though I think I had a pretty clear understanding of what it was at the start. So, so you, you knew you were trying to build a relationship as opposed to get them to submit your resume. That was You had a very different objective from most people when they network. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And at the very beginning, I was, I was clear in my own head about that. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the first people you, you reached out to. You know, what was your success rate? How, so you picked people based on what you thought were similarities in profile or maybe sympathy towards your background. Yes. And you sent them an email, long email, short emails? Oh, very short. If someone – so I only sent, per your recommendation, the standard LinkedIn connection request. Mm-hmm. I just said I was a friend and I let the LinkedIn use its – default message. And then I sent that to the first two or three people, again, like you said, based on having a similar background, a similar technical or government background. And of the first, I think, three or four connections I sent, sent connection requests that I sent out, I think I had two accept. And that to me was kind of surprising right off the bat. I was like, oh, wait, what's this? And I responded with a short email to both of them. Mm-hmm. And email was essentially you know, thank you for connecting. I'm planning on applying to your firm in the near future. And if you have a minute, I'd like to ask you some questions about, um, and then I would come up with something like about how you've seen someone with a similar profile make the transition. Or if I thought that their work was interesting, I would say, I would ask them about um, some of the work that they've done, or I'd like to ask about the work you do. And did those, did those emails asking for a chat, did they bear fruit or was it also you know difficulty at the beginning um in the beginning it was about 50 50 and i've it maybe a little bit less than that and that seems to be kind of constant through the networking progress i think that there's just a a factor like a um an acceptance factor where some people will accept your connection and then they'll say well you know i'm awfully busy but thank you for connecting and then other people will say um, oh, sure, I'd love to. And then you go through the the dance of trying to arrange maybe a phone chat or mm-hmm. something. And I was always very, very clear right in my first email, I wanted a phone chat. Not just, I didn't just want to email back and forth some questions. I wanted to speak with them on the phone. And so then, you know, maybe 30 to 50% of the people would accept, um, would say yes to a chat. But then of those, you know, the majority might make, turn into a phone call, but not everyone would, just because our schedule has never worked out. So, so you were getting some successes at the beginning. People were writing back to you. How did that first phone chat go? The first phone chat, let me see. Let me think back to that one. It would have been... Was it with a partner or was it with a, someone below a partner level? It was with a junior person. Okay. And, but... It was, and I, I recall this distinctly, you describing this in a podcast, junior in a management consulting firm does not mean junior. And so this person had a background like mine and was actually not professionally, not a junior person at all, but they had a junior position. And the call went really well. Um, we connected professionally and ended up talking for, I think, 60 to 70 minutes and just kept going. And I was asking you know, I, I treat it kind of like an interview where I want to figure out what makes the other person tick, what's interesting about their career, what lessons have they learned that I can apply. And so we just kept talking. Um, 
<laughs> so, so let's zoom into that because I think that's a problem most people have. They just don't know how to keep a conversation going. Okay. Or they don't know when it's appropriate to end a conversation. You spoke for 60 to 70 minutes. I think we can all agree that's a pretty good first call. Do you think that the call went well because you had a similar background or because of the way you managed the call? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I think both of those factors come into play. Part of it was, although I was speaking to a junior consultant, the person was actually very senior in some other respects, and so they had a lot of confidence themselves. So they weren't there was no question about, you know, say maybe me threatening, you know, mm -hmm, threatening mm -hmm. them or something. And so they were very receptive to speaking. But then I think also um, my demeanor and then how I was managing the call allowed it to keep going. And do you feel that when you, when you started off this discussion, you told me your objective was to build a relationship, mm -hmm. not to get them to do anything. Did you find in the call that you were able to stick to that agenda item of just building a relationship, not asking for anything? Was it easy for you to do that? Yes, it was easy for me to do that. One, um, I'm thinking back over the calls that I've had. One call actually ended kind of awkwardly because I didn't really have an exit strategy, and I think that the other person was expecting me to start asking for things, mm -hmm. and I didn't. I, I wasn't going there, and so the call was sort of, oh, okay, well, I guess we're done now. So you talk about an exit strategy. Elaborate on that. What I mean is, after you've had a conversation for a while, there needs to be a, a decent way to end the conversation so it doesn't end in a series of awkward pauses. And in some cases, uh, typically the person you're speaking with will say, well, I have some other engagement. I have to go. And in fact, that's what happened on my first call. The person I was speaking with said, well, my partner is expecting me for dinner. I have to go. And, and have dinner with, with him or her. But why would you say the second one is awkward? It sounds like the first one ended the same way. Oh, well, what I mean was there was another one where we, the conversation kind of petered out. Okay. And better if I had been able to say, okay, thank you for your time. You've, you've given me some insight into what you do. I really appreciate this. You know, um, you know let's stay in touch and just end more decisively. So what you're saying is um, quit while you're ahead. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Sounds good. So I want to. We're going through a chronological sequence of events, which I think you know our clients would prefer. But I do want to step out of the chronology for just a second because you had a lot of balls in the air. You were you know writing to a lot of people. You were networking. You were trying to connect with people. Mm -hmm. I, I want I want you to elaborate a bit on how you used us okay. and how often you used us. Did you use us enough? And because I think that one of the problems clients have is they don't know what level of interaction to have. You know, how independent should they be versus dependent? Oh, I was thinking that at the beginning as well. I had no idea what was appropriate. Um, and so I was kind of learning it. But I assumed, and I forget if you mentioned it somewhere, I assumed there should be a lot of interaction until I was cleared to operate independently, basically. And so I would, anytime I was going to send an email to anyone, I would clear it through you. I would I would just put it put you I would copy and paste it into an email to you and I would say here's briefly here's the person that just connected and here's the note that I'm going to send them and then I would wait um, I would wait for a, like an an okay or a you should change this and then I would send it. Well, let's talk about the frequency because I think that's important. You know, I find some candidates will they'll get a response from a partner and they'll only tell me five days later. Ah, oh, okay. So I would operate in real time as much as possible. It, as soon as I received a connection, as soon as someone connected with me, 
I would write off a quick note and send a draft to you. And then within maybe within a day, hopefully within hours of getting the okay, I would then send the draft. So I tried to be, I tried two things. I tried to be responsive to the people who were connecting with me. And then I tried to be operating in real time with, with you while you were coaching me. And you found, and did you feel that this ability to stay hot on the trail was more beneficial than, you know, sort of dealing with networking once every weekend? Oh, absolutely. I, um, I think it's critical when, so when someone interacts with you, there's, there's like a, there's like a tempo that, that mm -hmm. exchange happens on. And so if someone sends you an email, you know, within hours of you sending them a connection request and you wait five days to get back to them, that you're breaking the tempo. So if someone writes, you know, connects with you one day after you connect, then that kind of tells you, okay, well, I have about a day to get back to them. And if you break that by don't, and you don't respond to someone in the appropriate time frame, it, it shows that you're not really interested. It, I think it communicates that you're not really interested. Um, so it's, it's important to sort of know what that tempo is and follow it, I think. That's what, at least that was my approach. Yeah, so you know, what I hear you saying is that you've got to create a lifestyle at work and at home where mm -hmm. you're not unplugged from your email or network so that you don't break that momentum. Yes, that was that was actually uh, the logistics were a bit challenging for me because of because of how I work. But mm -hmm. I I made time, you know, for example, um, stepping out to my car over lunch or or in the morning before I left for work, just so that I could keep things. You know, the worst delay there would be might be a four or six hour delay if I really needed to get back to someone right away. And obviously, the results have have shown have you know shown on your side. I, I want to maybe step back into the chronology of events here. Uh, you had a few calls and you were building a style of communication. Do you have any tips for people in terms of how they should communicate? In terms of how they should communicate? You know, demeanor and so on. Language. Because, you know, it's very easy to tell people you have to speak in a professional, polite, friendly way, build a relationship. But a lot of people don't know how to do that. So I want to spend some time talking about how you internalize that and what are the things you did to get people to like you, to talk to you, to refer you to other consultants? Okay. Well, so one of the things I was doing, and I was doing this somewhat consciously, was uh, I was thinking about the the principles from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. He gives a lot of very practical tips if you're not, if you're not naturally a charismatic social person, and I'm not. It gives you some very practical tips to learn how, how people read you and what what projects well. And so I would, I would try to ask interesting questions. And when I say interesting, I, I mean interesting to the other person. I would get them to talk about something that they enjoyed, you know, that they were engaged in professionally, and try to ask follow-on questions based on that. And always build and always think, um, think positively. You know, I would never really go negative. I would never go like fake negative like you can make people will make self-deprecating jokes yeah. I would have I would avoid those just because fake negative you know I didn't even want to go there at all so I was always staying positive I was always trying to be inquisitive you know like like what the other person was doing was fascinating me and I wanted to le learn more about their experience or their insights or their opinions um, and build on that so at, at any time because you've you, 
based on where we are in the chronology of events, you've had about three or four calls. Did you ever ask for help or no. ask for anything? Let's see. I I would ask for questions at sure. the end. I would, and that was really a way for me to make room for someone to offer to help. Okay. Um, I might ask – no, I would never really ask for it. I would ask about, you know, so, you know, what do you recommend for someone in my position or with my background? But that would be during the call. That wouldn't be at the end of it. At so the end of a, that's a question, but you never ask them for reviewing my resume or anything like that? I would never ask, can I speak to you again? Will you review my resume? Can you recommend any? I wouldn't even ask for them to connect me with other people. So your philosophy was that if you did the planning well, the rest would come. You don't have to ask for it. Yes, and if it if it came or didn't come, it would that would not change my approach. Well, let's just think about it. That's an important point. Let's assume someone didn't have a great call with you, or you just had a bad day. Did you stop communicating with them, or did you just continue trying to build a relationship? How did you handle that, and why? Okay, so there's I can think of two examples. One example I did not I did not really continue the relationship, and then the other one I did. And one example was a, a call early on that I had with a recruiter. I had connected and had a couple emails with a more senior person who put me in touch with a recruiter, and I had a call that, with a recruiter that was just very flat. It was low energy. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was being read a script, and I was not. You know, I didn't have a chance to come in and ask my engaging questions and show off my, you know, intelligent, witty personality, so to speak. And so at the end of the call, I just got, you know, well, there's our online portal and you can submit an application question that way. Thank you for your time. You know, it was very flat. Mm-hmm. And so in that one, I sent a thank you note, of course. I, sent I think I remember that call, actually, when, you were, when we were discussing it. Yes. And I didn't understand at the time um, how much of a failure it was, but it was a bit, it was a failure, and I'm okay with that. So I, I sent a thank you note saying, you know, thank you for your time. I appreciate, you know, speaking with you. And then I basically m- mentally wrote that off as a dead end, and so I didn't, pr- I didn't push against that at all. Um, I assumed that, you know, maybe I'd talk to that person again later, maybe I wouldn't, and I wasn't going to let that uh, affect me, and I wasn't going to try to change that. Another call, much later on, uh, this is the one the call began well, but it ended kind of awkwardly because I, did, I sort of missed an opportunity to present my case, so to speak, like why I was doing what I was doing and what my, what my specific plans were. And had I been able to do that, I, I would have been much, come across much more impressive. But I didn't do that, so the call ended a little bit awkwardly, but still on positive terms, and I did the same thing again. I sent a quick thank you note, you know, thank you for your time, I appreciate appreciate. You know, you're taking the time to share your insights, and I got to thank you, you know, the same thank you note back. So in both cases, it's the same approach as if someone offered to help. I would send a thank you note and, and just you know, let it be, and if there was going to be progression or not, I would let that play out, but I wouldn't push for anything. Okay, and I know that you know, there was a situation where um, I think a principal, a partner was leaving the firm. You wanted your advice on something completely outside of consulting around engineering, and you also offered to help him. That was an interesting one, eye-opening one for me as well when I began to realize that it really was about building relationships and that these relationships are not one-way streets because this was someone who we'd never spoken on the phone. In fact, he, just over email, had connected me with someone else that, with whom I did speak. And then that was kind of the end of it. But I, So I saw on LinkedIn that he was actually 
I came, um, I think this was right around the holidays, I saw that his position had changed and he had left the, the firm he was at. And so I sent him a quick note congr congratulating him on his transition. And then he said, because we have similar uh, backgrounds, he said, you know, Edward, I'd like to have a conversation with you to speak because, you know, I want to talk about some ideas that I've been, been going on and I want your insight. And so that, that sort of blew my mind, but it was a lot of fun. We had, we had a nice phone call. We talked about technical stuff that I enjoy, and it was sort of a reverse networking problem. And then so I've realized all these people that I've been networking with, you know, they're not stepping stones for me to, to get into a firm somewhere. These are actually, you know, they're people just like I am. They were in my position once. I may be in their position in the future, and I have connections with them now. And so if I want to ask something, I could go back to one of them again. And, and you know, I actually recently congratulated one of the people because I saw that they, they made the transition to a more senior position. So I sent them a quick email congratulating them. And, and this person came back to me and said, oh, you know what? I don't think we ever got that phone call. Let's, would, you, would you still like to talk? Uh, but I didn't send them a thank you note expecting that. It was just you know, part of staying in touch and keeping the relationship going at the appropriate level. Okay, so it's early. It's as you we said earlier. Early investments expect nothing. Primary objective is to build a relationship because if you build a good relationship, good things happen. Mm -hmm. I, I want to step into something a little bit more tactical, yeah, because I think it'll be useful for for listeners. Let's just talk about a single phone call, immediate preparation, what you did on the phone, and what you did immediately afterwards, so that people can you know bed down the okay. sequence. So if I knew I had a phone call scheduled. I would make sure that, and typically I, I tried to schedule them after work so that I could arrive home and then I could have dinner or do whatever immediate chores I needed to do, and then I could have at least 15 or 20 minutes to prepare for the call. And I would prepare for the call in a couple ways. First, I would um, open up their profile on LinkedIn and I would take a look at what they did, what they've done, what school they went to, what areas they've done work in and I'd think about what questions I'd want to ask them to get it to get some depth on their career and the insights that they had or might be willing to share or things we had in common so I'd write down some questions you know on pencil and paper um, and then another thing I would do is I would make sure I had no distractions for the phone call mm -hmm. the one really bad phone call and I mentioned this earlier I, I was making from my car in the parking lot mm -hmm. work and it was just very very distracting and that was a bad idea so every phone call I try to make sure that I have nothing else I take my phone because I'm, I or I turn off all the messaging on my computer and I make sure that when I'm on the phone call I'm 100% paying attention to the person and I'm standing up and walking around so that standing up why standing up just stand up and walk around I'm more energetic and I can I can project my personality through the phone call better than if I'm like huddled up on the couch, mm -hmm. curled up with my phone for some reason. It's, I would also, that'd be like smiling. You know, you can yeah. hear smile almost over the phone. So you can hear it when someone has a positive, confident demeanor. Another little trick, and this may sound silly, but, but this worked for me, was right before the phone call, I would take two minutes for like positive self-talk or like a, like a, power stance. It's like standing how someone would stand right after they found out they've won the Olympics or the Super Bowl. You know, it's a it's just a psychological trick to build to build confidence in yourself and to put yourself into a more attractive mental place. 
Uh, but I would do that just to make sure that I was coming in, you know, with a positive energy, that I was going to be upbeat, that I was going to be able to ask thoughtful, interesting questions. And then I would take notes during the call. So that was all before the call. Now, during the call, I have a pencil and paper. You know, I'm walking around, but I'll walk back to my pencil and paper, and I'll take notes. You know, I'll mark down on the upper right, I'll put the date of the, of the phone call. On the upper left, I'll put the person's name. And then as they start talking and giving insights, I'll take notes because, well, first, it, I can review them later. Second, it, you know, I can review them later in the call to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And then this person is giving me information, uh, you know, hard, hard won information, you know, school of hard knocks. So it's, it's important stuff. And I don't want it to just go in one ear and come out the other. And once the networking call is done, if this person wants to help me, then that's it. I've won. Or if he doesn't want to help me, I wanted to actually capture, you know, the benefit of having the relationship. You know, what were they trying to tell me? And so I would make sure to take notes during the call. And now after the call, I would look over my notes and then I would write up like a, a summary of maybe some of the key points and the results and who I spoke with. And then I would send that to you. And I wasn't really, ex in most cases, I wasn't really expecting any response or any feedback, but I was doing this to keep you updated as my coach. And I was doing this so in my own head, I could process the call and understand, you know, glean what lessons I could from it, regardless of the networking progress that I, you know, what did I learn during this call? I mean, you raise a good point. You're obviously collecting a lot of data and, you know, little things like whether the person canceled the call, moved the call, helps us build a profile of the person in your head. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges or the opportunities we have is that the more data we know about what you're going through, the better it is for us to advise you. That, makes so th sense. that means the more you share with us, the better we can advise you. Mm -hmm. Do you feel sharing more helped you or simply stayed the course? It helped me. And it, it, it helped me because it gave you the opportunity to improve the coaching. It also helped me because in order to share with you, I was communicating with you. In order to communicate with, well, so, and to communicate with you, I had to learn how to communicate well with someone who doesn't have the same background as me, you know, who has a management, who is a, basically a management consultant or an ex-management consultant. So learning to communicate with you helped me to learn how to communicate with management consultants. Yeah, and for the listeners, you know, at some point, I think we were even emailing back and forth or over Skype like seven times a day. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's great because the more we know, the, the, the information is power, and the more information we have, the better it is. The, the, the other side to the coin is that the f communicating, you know, writing a, a quick note, whether it's on Skype or an email or it's a write-up of a phone call, communicating that to you requires th that, I, that I write it down myself. I have to type it into the computer, which means I have to think about what I'm going to say. So I think, wait a minute, what really just happened? How do I boil it down? You know, or what was the takeaway from that phone call? What were the three most important points? Or what was the actual result of this conversation? So I had to process and understand what was happening, and then I would communicate it. And both of those, the, the processing and the communication, um, were beneficial. Okay, so now, obviously, all of this discussion we've had, which is very useful, even for me, to, to see how you, you know, led through each of the different steps, I want us to move now towards the sequence of actions or steps that led to you getting this written referral from the partner uh, you know how did it build up to that what happened 
was it just talking to him directly where you referred to him or how did this happen okay so this is i think this is where everyone you know life happens differently for everyone and it's almost impossible to predict the future mm-hmm. and that should actually give you confidence because you never know you know at any rock you turn over might turn out to be the the one with the gold coin under it and that's kind of what was happening with me i was having success with phone i was having good phone conversations with people relatively consistently when i could get them you know because there's not a 100% hit rate understandably and so this happened one time i sent a connection request to this to this senior person they accepted my request i responded you know according to the tempo a couple hours later i responded with a a request for a phone chat and this is in a us office right yes this is okay. in the us office. and the this person responded saying, well, yes, I'd, I'd love to. And so we coordinated a phone call. It was a short one for me. It was a 30-minute phone call. Um, and it went, it went as well as any of my phone calls. It felt kind of at this point relatively routine. You know, I had, I had an interesting person that I was talking to who had insights to give me about an industry I didn't understand. So I was able to uh, um, ask him about some stuff that I didn't like, how did you make the transition? He also had an engineering background. I, at one point I asked him, how did you make the transition from the engineering background to the very, very non-technical aspect that you've specialized in now? And he told me, gave me some insights as to why that was appealing. And I thought, you know what? I've never thought about that that way before. But So this is how all my phone calls have been going, it seems, you know, once I got really got the hang of it. And this one went as well as any. And then, but then this time, you know, the, you know I picked up the right rock, you know, the, um, the this person made two offers to me during the course of the call. First, he said, Edward, so you've had a couple questions for me about recruiting that I can't answer. So what I want you to do is to write those questions up into a formal thank you note, you know, send that to me, and then I'll pass that on to recruiting. And, and I, you know, mentally I'm going, ah, that's interesting. Um, and then the second offer that he made was, so... Edward, have you done have you done much work with case interviews? And I said, well, a little bit, but not a lot. And he said, ah, well, we have resources inside the firm. So once you've made your application, get in touch with me, and I can I can connect you with some of these resources to do some practice interviews. And so, the call was I approached that call the same as I had approached every other call, except this, and I connected with this person as well as I have connected with maybe seventy five percent of the people I've spoken with, except this time. The person, for some reason, had the seniority or had the, the demeanor or had a really nice day, you know, I don't know, made these offers to help. And those have been the ones where this has led to uh, my questions for recruiting basically turned into him submitting a referral for me. That's impressive. I mean, you know, I don't want to give away too much about your background, but, you know, I think that all other things being equal, you would have had a challenging as you have had a challenging path into getting an interview over six months, right? The, the, way I, the way I describe it to people is, you know, if there's a stack of resumes in sitting in a recruiter's office and they're going through the resumes, you know, what will make a resume stand out? What will make a resume stand out is the school the person goes to, the name brand, the name brands basically, what school they went to, what employers they've had, what their accomplishments have been, but I have none of those things. What makes my resume stand out is there's a little post-it note sticking on my resume, and the note is from someone the recruiter knows, saying, this person's interesting, we should talk to them. And so my approach with networking was, because 
I'm not saying I don't have, you know, I don't have achievements and I don't have, you know, um, a solid background, but because I don't have any of these things that are going to flag out my resume, what's going to make mine stand out is my relationship with someone that knows the person screening my resume. So you were trying to find a post-it note. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a yes. good strategy. Obviously it's, worked. Yeah. So I want to, I want to just uh, briefly touch on one point because thank you for the note from, for my birthday, for my book. I really appreciated it. Where you made the comparison towards dating. I was uh, afraid it's personal, but it, it's so true. And I, I want you to touch on that because I tell that to people as well. Networking is dating. It's just in a different environment, hopefully with different intentions as well. We would hope, you know, with lawsuits and so on. But talk me through that analogy. Okay. So um, there's, there's a joke on the internet. You know, there's lots of jokes on the internet. There's a joke on the internet about how you're supposed to succeed at dating, you know, in two brief steps. And, you know, step one, be attractive. Mm -hmm. Step two, don't be unattractive. And people joke, but it's also sad because it's true. But in this case, it's true professionally as well. And you have control over the factors. And what, what, that, what I mean by that is you're looking for someone, just like when you're flirting with someone romantically, when you're flirting professionally, you're looking for mutual interest, you know, do, would I like to work with this person? Do I like what the kinds of things that they do? Are they interesting to me? And you're building a relationship that way. And just like with, the, with a romantic relationship, you start by just flirting and flirting is very safe. You know, you can, you can make jokes without being serious and you can escalate and test if someone else wants to, wants to take it to the next level and maybe go on a date. And so, with networking, it's the same way. You can check to see if someone wants to make a phone call. That's like escalating. And if they're interested based on the image you project through your profile and through your emails, if that's interesting to them, if that's professionally attractive, then they'll say, okay, let's go to the next level. Let's have a phone call. And so then there, you're trying to establish a professional rapport with them. And if you have a professional rapport with them, you know, you quote, you look into each other's eyes, whatever that means professionally, then maybe they'll offer to do something for you or to take you out on a second date, you know, have another phone call later. So I think the analogies are, are very, very apt. And a lot of the same qualities that make a person personally attractive in a romantic context, make them attractive in a professional context, and, and vice versa. A lot of the, quali the qualities that make you unattractive romantically, and I know a lot about this, make you <laughs> professionally, because I have not had a lot of success in either, in either realm until recently. Um, so you're saying after you get the offer, you're going to get married as well? <laughs> I would not be surprised, given, what's, given the major changes that have been occurring. But... To be specific about it, for example, desperation is unattractive. And anyone who's been successful uh, dating knows this. This is a lesson I've just learned recently. And desperation in networking is the exact same thing. It's unattractive. You know, it's, it's like you, you've given examples in podcasts. If you're talking to someone and saying, oh, wow, you guys are the best. I'd do anything to work with you guys. I think that's just the best stuff in the world. You know, that's, that's not attractive. That's not sexy professionally. Um, no, I agree with you. It's a very good observation. And I always tell people that um, networking is exactly like dating. It's the same principles, the same ground rules apply. Uh, there's no difference. If you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you project a certain kind of confidence when you're dating, you will be expected to project the same kind of confidence in networking as well. And, and you raise the point of desperation. And that's right. You never want to look desperate because successful people are not desperate. And if you are, you know, desperate, you automatically signaling that you are not successful. So I want to summarize what I heard you say in seven steps, if you don't mind, Edward. 
and this links into what you know I've thought about why you were so successful in your networking and you and you were you know compared to um, most candidates compared to the peer group against which we had you and other peer groups from you know Stanford Harvard and so on you were by far one of the most successful people at networking so let's just look at the things that I think you did well and correct me if, if you disagree with anything here I think firstly you put in the work to do an outstanding resume build a great LinkedIn profile and prepare well going to the podcast you know, I know at one point you were writing to me seven times a day to confirm things, check emails. So especially at the beginning when you were just starting off, you know, there was a lot of hand-holding there, am I right? Yes, a lot of hand-holding. And, and I always tell candidates that at the beginning there has to be hand-holding. I, I need to rewrite your resume 15 times. I'm going to change things all the time. I'm going to push you to say things better and better because it's not about being better than you were two months ago. It's about being better than everyone else was two months ago. And that takes work. So I think you put in the work. It's clear. Three months, hard work, you did it. The second thing I think, once you had that hard work, the foundation laid and you built your LinkedIn profile, when you network initially, you've got to go narrow to find people that have a connection to you. And only if that doesn't work do you go broad because, as you say, you don't know where you're going to strike gold with a relationship. So you start off narrowly and then you start building in where you see allied relationships or you know, what we're calling consulting adjacencies, something I, close to what you're searching for. Can I add a note to that? Sure. It's especially critical um, for someone like me who doesn't have an alumni network. A lot of, you know, a lot of my, well, several of my friends have degrees from very prestigious mm -hmm. schools. So their LinkedIn, the people that they can connect to on LinkedIn is the pool is automatically much bigger. Mm -hmm. I had very few people that How I could even... How many people did you have? Just so we can lay the groundwork. How many people did you have when you started off at, at the big three firms? Do you mean that were, that were connected to me on LinkedIn? Yes. Um, so at the beginning, none. None. Okay, so you started from ground zero. So you would just build this house from nothing. I have one friend, and, and uh, she's still, she still actually may help me have a chance uh, with the firm she works at. Mm -hmm. I have one friend who works in one of the big three firms. All of the other connections have been, um, have been built. And yes. just to be clear, I mean, how you got the referral in the interview is not through these two people, right? No, no. They were, they were not involved because they were at a different firm from what I understand. That's correct. Okay, so good. So, so it's, about, it's about networking very diligently and cultivating, curating basically a network. Yes. Pruning, it, carefully growing it one step at a time. In the beginning, I would search and I would find someone that I could not connect to because they weren't close enough to me. They weren't within two, whatever two or three degrees you need. Mm -hmm. But I would mark that profile for later because I thought if I connect to someone else in that office, then I can send this person a connection request. And then that's, what I, that's how I built it out. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think you did that very well. So I would use the word curatorship where you cultivated something over time. The, um, the third lesson that I see here is that it's, it's two parts to the third lesson. The first one is listening and creating opportunities to listen. And I think you do that very well because I would send you, I think that I send you 95% of my responses to you were one-line emails. Mm -hmm. Where I would tell you, do this, don't do this, this doesn't make any sense. And you would then take it, you would listen or, or read it. I'm using listening in its you know, um, figurative sense here. And then you'd act on it. And one thing I did appreciate is that every time I asked you to change something, you would think about it carefully, come back and say, this is what I think you're saying, this is what I'm thinking I'm going to do, does it make sense? 
and you do that very well. And one of the things that any candidate, whether they're working with us or with someone else, if you are going to find a coach, you've got to take their feedback. That's the definition of coaching. If you want, I mean, if if you're offering me value, you know, valuable advice, and I'm not taking it for everything it's worth, you know, I'm not getting my money's worth, basically. So you're saying you got, so you definitely got your money's worth with seven emails a day. Yes, but... It was really you, you mentioned the one one line responses and that in the beginning that was kind of shocking to me because I'm I'm a very verbose person. I like to explain everything in detail and here are the three steps and the five components and you know the and I was realizing that you were really training me to do that tight, concise communication that consultants used. And so you know, I was okay, what's he saying? Okay, excellent. What does this really mean? Okay, how do I make the changes? Yeah, I mean, I also like writing longer paragraphs and longer sentences. I do have that problem, but I do force candidates to focus on just the core idea. Oh, very so useful. When you're networking, that's your communication goes that way. It, it should. And, and the fourth but, thing, sorry, you want to say something? Uh, just one note on concision. Um, being long, writing, writing too many words is also unattractive as well. Just going on and on and on and on. Just... It's not attractive either. I agree. It's just, you know, I tell people in the smartphone era, no one has time to read it. Mm -hmm. You have to get to the point very quickly. But I come to the fourth point, which is very important. The fourth lesson here that I think is very important. And well, everything you said is important. I do find this is the one that people never get right. As I said earlier, you have to do the work up front to lay the foundation. You know, it's not like you're going to the Olympic Games and you're just going to win if you've been eating, you know, um, Lay's potato chips for the whole year. You have to do work, right? But once you get there, you have to do work as well. And I think you did that very well, where you set up a routine that allowed you to keep in contact with us, which I think you did very well. At no time did I ever feel, you know, you were unavailable, which is, for me is a very big problem when a candidate doesn't respond to emails very quickly, because sometimes I do push them to do things. I felt that you set up a, a routine and a lifestyle and a pattern whereby you were able to follow up on multiple networks and build it. And I think that's very important. You know, candidates work in investment banking and so on, but then you have to understand that if you don't put in the effort, you're going to be dealing with a cold case on the weekend. Yes, the tra it will be dead. The tempo for the, the communications will have been broken, and you know that may be the end of that lead, for example. Yeah, so I agree, and I think you do that well. Other candidates do it well as well, but, but it's, a very important, it's a very important understanding people must have. It, it's something that you need to internalize and realize that if you're going to make this work, it's not as if you can just do it on the weekends because you are responding to someone else's cycle, not your own. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. You know, you're responding to them. You're putting them first um, to some degree. Yeah. My, my fifth observation is that one of the things I liked about the way you worked with us is that you always moved the conversation forward. So it was never as if you'd ask me something and then I had to push you and tell you, okay, this is what you have to do next. This is what you have to do next. No, it was always a situation where I'd give you something to work with and you'd run with it and come back and say, okay, Michael, this is what you told me to do. This is as far forward as I can take it. What do you think I should do next? Or this is what I think you should do next. Does it make sense? I do find that a lot of, stu lot of candidates... Um, and I'm not even talking about our candidates, I'm just talking generally, they, can, they feel that if they have a coach or a mentor or a guide, the mentor and guide is to tell them exactly what to do and they'll simply do it and report back and then wait for instructions. That's a, that's a very interesting insight. The, the way I thought about that was, I recall this very early on, I, was, I would ask you, oh, 
should I do this? Do you want me to do this? And then really quickly, I got the idea that that first question is kind of useless. Why don't I just do it and ask for feedback? Um, you know, it's like saying, it's like asking two questions. And your first question is, can I bother you to ask a question? Exactly. You know, <laughs> it's a very common one. I've actually, I, like, I've got that right now. There's a, there's a question in my mind I, I actually out, want to ask you, but I'm thinking, no, 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 I'm going to go and do it first. And then I'll send it to him and see what he has to say about it afterwards. I don't need to ask him, should I do this? That's a waste of his time, and it's adding an extra step. I'll just do it because I think it's right, and then take feedback. Which brings me to my sixth point. A lot of a lot of people, I think, expect that you're going to build this networking strategy, and you're going to implement it over two months, and then we're going to we're going to do a feedback session after two months, after the month, after two weeks. And what I tell people is that networking is constant trial and error. It is you're going to be constantly doing something. You don't know what the result is going to be. You can never plan where it's going to go. You're going to do it. It's either going to work, it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, we'll, we'll discuss the lessons. But because it's constant trial and error, it means constant communication with us. Mm -hmm. Because basically, in, in a manner of speaking, you know, being consultants, we think in decision trees. Imagine that you, you, you're driving on a road and you're facing a fork in the road every 20 meters. And every 20 meters, you have to make a decision. And if you continue for two weeks without contacting us, you've made 100 decisions without informing us of where of the decisions you've made and you've ended up at a point that we have no clue where you are right and you may not it, you may have made mistakes that would have been very very preventable and now you're at a dead end somewhere. exactly so this idea of uh, people don't understand that networking there's, there's no networking secret i think that's very important to understand there's no networking secret there are even today sometimes i will you know I, sometimes i have discussions with kevin we'll will attend meetings and I just don't hit it off with some of you know the partners he works with. It happens. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we don't get along. Other times we get along with other people. So this it's a it's a there's no secret to networking. It is there's if people are thinking, hey, you know what, let's just do these things, it's gonna work. No. You are always going to have situations where things are not gonna work. So it's a trial and error process, but if you are getting advice from someone, make sure you're constantly feeding them updates so they can tell you what is wrong or they can at least you know, guide you. Not always tell you what is wrong but put you on the right path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree completely with all of that. And then my, my seventh, my final observation, and, and I'm picking this from the military because if you look at military, the way the military has evolved over years is that initially a lot of decisions on the battlefield were made from a central command center and the, the commander would sit in that central command center and he would tell his armies exactly what they had to do on the field and then they would do it. And then at the end of the day or end of the week they would report back and he would give them a new pattern to follow. But it doesn't work that way anymore because you've got more mobile units so you can't tell someone what to do because they're collecting so much information themselves on the field and things are happening so fast that by the time you feed back what's happening to them you'll be dead. And and that's similar to the coach and mentee relationship here. No matter how fast you give me information, you need to be smart enough to make a decision yourself on the ground. And I call that common sense. And and an example of that is where I had a candidate recently. They, the firm, it was one of the big three, asked them to send a list of questions that they could submit to the HR recruiter. The recruiter would then send that to a consultant so that they could set up a meeting for this client to talk to that consultant. And this client sent a list of something like 25 questions. 
and they were like really detailed questions like what is your salary and I was thinking to myself but that is an example of making a bad decision that would get you killed in Iraq today mm -hmm. yep. right? you have to you have to realize that no matter how good your coach is the be this is a very important point I'm going to make as we progress for example as you went through things um, Edward you noticed that your networking was becoming more and more regular people were writing to you more and more often so as you become more and more successful, no matter how often you feed back information to me, you're going to have to make some decisions where on the fly and I'm not going to be able to guide you. Yes. I, that's, the way I think of it is that this, this coaching process is successful when I don't need it anymore because I need to be able to do what you're doing in, you know, with myself. I need to be able to operate independently. And that independence grows slowly like you said at the beginning there's a lot of hand holding but as you gain experience and learn you know learn about the tempo and style of communication and how to structure a call and you learn all of these things you need to internalize them so that you can execute them like you said on your own because what if um, what if someone gives you a callback right after you send a connection request and you don't have time to get feedback from your coach so you need to be prepared and you want to think about, you know, am I learning to do this on my own? Do I understand why my coach is telling me what to do? Could it, would I have thought of that myself if I had had more time? So that's, I agree completely. You need to learn to operate independently, you know, because things are going to be changing fast and you don't know, you know, what's going to happen or when you need to do it. So it's almost counterintuitive. You've got to work so close with your coach at the beginning because you're trying to learn as much as he knows to be independent later. Yes. And if you're independent at the beginning, you're never going to build that close enough communication channel so that you'll always be independent but never successful. Right. Then you're not being coached. That's, exactly. It's not I want to just touch on the point of confidence because it is a big problem for, I think, anyone. I don't even have to you know, explain this. But a lot of people assume they have to have content expertise to be confident. Now, clearly… You're quite an articulate speaker. I'm sure that when you were speaking to some of these BCG Bain people and so on, you didn't have the content knowledge. How did you manage that? The way I – so I, this is something I've been good, good at for, for a while, and it's, I'm, I'm conscious of it. I build confidence not in what I know but in my ability to understand what, something, what someone does or what something means. So what I'll do is ask a question and then listen to the – the answer, think about the answer, understand it, and then build on it. So I'm confident that I can ask intelligent questions and that I can think about the response and I can carry it forward. And so my confidence doesn't come from what I know. It comes from my style of communication and how I can, you know, how I can think about the conversation as it's happening. I, I like that. I think that makes – it's exactly what you know, consulting is. I always tell people that no matter how much time, for example, I spend time in resources and banking, right? I spend a lot of time there. But I'm never going to know more than the people who work in those industries. Mm -hmm. I just can't, uh, you know. And so what value do I bring? I don't bring the value because I have content knowledge and my confidence doesn't come from the fact that I know more than the person sitting across the table from me. But my confidence comes from the fact that I can analyze the problem better because I ask different questions. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking about a different objective function. I'm trying to solve a problem. And for most people, they can't even isolate the problem they're dealing with. And I think the point you raise is very important. And I do stress that in many, many podcasts is that your confidence needs to come from your communication skills and your ability to ask the right questions to understand the content or topic being discussed.
it should not come from the fact that you've memorized and studied three textbooks before the call because that is just a counterproductive technique. You cannot do that for every call. You will fail at some point, yes. You will fail at some point. And I remember uh, today he's talking to a candidate who wanted to adjust his resume for healthcare and he wanted to go read up on healthcare. And I said that, no, don't do that. You've got to celebrate what you don't know. You don't know healthcare and they know you don't know healthcare. If you try to know healthcare, you're just going to give yourself a headache and you're going to look silly in front of these people because you can never know as much as them. So what you should do is be upfront and say, I don't know healthcare, but I do feel I have the strong enough reasoning skills to, to you know, understand the issues and I'm willing to learn. And that is as much as they expect from you. And, and the other point I always make is that it's always the younger people, in consulting especially, who want to be experts at something. Because they haven't realized yet, well, not everyone, but the majority haven't realized that content skills doesn't grant you, you know, competency in a discipline. It's the ability to analyze it. And it's always the older partners who have built those competency skills and analyzing things who are usually upfront in saying, you know, I don't understand this. In fact, I was speaking to Diego, one of our mentors today, and linking him up with a firm that wanted him to talk them through some strategy issues. And, and the one thing that struck me about this guy is that he does exactly what we do, is that the first thing he did is he told the CEO, I actually know nothing about your business, and you know, I think that's a good thing. So I, I like the fact that you rely on building confidence from your communication skills, because that is ultimately where, let me put it this way, it's a battery that can never run out. Yep. And that, that trans transfers exactly back to that analogy of dating. It's, you know, if you're, if you're being defensive and like trying to hide the fact you don't know something or have a weakness, you know, that's unattractive. And if you're confident enough to say up front, well, I don't know, I don't know about this before, but it sounds interesting. Can you tell me about it? You know, that's much more attractive, professionally speaking. I agree. But although I would say that if you don't know the person's name, maybe you should leave that date immediately.